Due to the nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual assault and murder. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. In some of the cases I cover, a few common threads come up time and time again. A crime is committed, the leads stall or never come, the case goes cold. Family, community members, investigators have to try and push the case forward in the face of hopelessness. Those who love the victims, of course, grieve. And sometimes, there's a big break that gives authorities a suspect, which hopefully allows justice to run its course. There's a lot of all those elements in this episode. But the thing about this case is finding the suspect isn't what makes everything come together. It's kind of when it all really goes wrong. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we're following Pamela Jackson and Cheryl Miller, two 17-year-old girls who hopped into a ramshackle Studebaker in 1971 but never made it to their destination. For over four decades, their families searched for answers until realizing the truth was right in front of them. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. At first, the empty spaces a missing person leaves behind are obvious. An unoccupied desk at school, an unworn coat in a closet. And sometimes there's no explanation for why there's that void where a person used to be. The longer a disappearance goes unsolved, 
the bigger that void grows. In the case of Pamela Jackson and Cheryl Miller, the effects of their disappearance expand like a toxic mushroom cloud, saturating the community in their small town. And people initially untouched by this case eventually get caught in the decades-long fallout. But in May of 1971, Vermilion, South Dakota had no idea their pleasant existence was about to be enveloped by tragedy. Vermilion is a small town with a population just shy of 10,000, and that accounts for most of the people in the entire county. It's the kind of place with sprawling farms, gravel roads, and a visible horizon in every direction. Many of the townspeople love the calm and quiet, but for the local teenagers, it can be a drag, so they have to make their own fun. Cheryl Miller and Pamela Jackson are juniors at Vermilion's High School. They're not exactly in with the seniors, but on May 29th, 1971, they hear about a party hosted by some older kids. School is out for the summer, so the girls are ready for some fun. But there are some problems. For starters, they don't know where exactly the party's going to be, just that it's on the outskirts of town. If they want to go, they'll first need to score an invite. And then, of course, there are parents to placate and curfews to negotiate. So they form a plan. Cheryl handles stage one. That evening, Cheryl's at home getting ready for the big night. She puts on her Timex watch and striped bell-bottoms. As she checks her appearance in the mirror, her eight-year-old sister Rita comes bounding into her room. Rita asks if Cheryl's going out. Cheryl says she's going roller skating, and Rita lights up. She loves roller skating with her big sister. But Cheryl has to let her down easy. Tonight's not a good time for her to join. Of course, Cheryl has no intention of actually going roller skating. That's just a cover story. But she's not about to tell her baby sister that. Rita pouts as Cheryl approaches her grandfather. He's got the keys to his beloved 1960 Studebaker Lark. Cheryl knows the car is a big responsibility. Not only is it her grandfather's pride and joy, but it's a little temperamental. It needs oil about every 25 miles, so she has to pay close attention to how it's running. It's 6.30 p.m. when Cheryl finally gets behind the wheel. There's a big grin on her face. She's pulled off phase one. Now it's time to pick up Pamela. On a farm about 15 miles away, Pamela's working on her own end of the plan. Her parents are pretty strict, so it probably takes a little more cajoling to get their permission to go out, especially in the Miller's famously spotty Studebaker. But the girls have a cover story for Pamela's parents, too. They say they're going to visit Cheryl's grandma in the hospital. It's not a total lie. They really are going to visit her. Pamela simply doesn't mention what she and Cheryl plan to do afterward. As Cheryl pulls up, Pamela's parents tell her they'll leave the kitchen light on. Pamela promises to turn it off when she gets home. With that... The girls head out. 
They arrive at the hospital shortly after. Cheryl and her grandmother Pearl are very close, so the three of them enjoy a long visit. At 9.30, the girls tell Pearl they're on their way to the roller rink. Instead, they cruise around town trying to find the party. Eventually, the girls spot a car in the parking lot of a local church. There are three boys from school standing around it. Cheryl pulls into the lot. This could be their inn. Apparently, the boys are indeed on their way to the party. They say it's taking place at a nearby gravel pit. If you heard gravel pit and imagined a giant hole in the ground, well, you're not far off. It's an industrial area where gravel or other building material is harvested and stacked in massive heaps for commercial sale. At night, a place like that would be deserted and isolated. The perfect spot for teenage shenanigans. Cheryl and Pamela had caught the guys at the perfect time. They'd pulled over at the church to grab some cups for the keg. Now that they've got them, they tell Cheryl and Pamela they can follow them to the party. Everyone gets back into their cars. It's a dark drive through the backcountry roads to the gravel pit. At one point, the boys leading the caravan realize they've missed their turn. They pull over and turn around. As they get back on the road, they realize the Studebaker is no longer behind them. They don't think too much about it. Maybe the girls figured out the right way and they're already at the party. But when the boys arrive, Cheryl and Pamela aren't there. They probably ask some of the other partygoers at some point because later on a couple arrives and says they saw the Studebaker. It was making a different wrong turn away from the gravel pit. No one's worried. In fact, they all laugh it off. The girls don't have a reputation for partying, so the other kids think they probably chickened out. The night carries on. Later in the early morning hours, Pamela's mom, Adele, stirs awake. She instinctively gets up to check if her daughter is home safe. But when Adele goes downstairs, she sees something that makes her heart sink. The kitchen light is still on. Pamela promised to turn it off when she got back to the house, which means she hasn't come home yet. Adele rushes upstairs to check her daughter's room. It's empty, the bed still made. She wakes her husband, Oscar, rousing him from a dead sleep into a living nightmare. It's 4 a.m., and their daughter isn't home. As soon as the sun begins to rise, Adele and Oscar get into their car to search for Pamela and Cheryl. They think the Studebaker might have broken down and the girls need help, but they can't find any trace of the girls or the car. It takes a little longer for Cheryl's family to raise the alarm. It's not unusual for their daughter to spend the night at a friend's house, but she always calls. As the morning drags on, the phone doesn't ring. Her mother, Helen, and her grandparents call around, but no one's seen Cheryl. That afternoon, the Jacksons contact the Vermilion Sheriff's Office. A deputy informs them they need to wait at least 48 hours before an official investigation can begin. The wait is excruciating for both families. 
by the time the sheriff's office takes action three days later, their initial shock has given way to dread. Police retrace Cheryl and Pamela's steps the night they disappeared and quickly unravel their cover story. They establish that the boys at the church were the last ones to see the girls. But investigators don't think they have anything to do with the disappearance. One theory is that the Studebaker broke down or got in an accident. So authorities and volunteers search the area surrounding the gravel pit, as well as the Missouri River, which runs right next to the road the kids drove on. When the searches turn up empty, the sheriff's office publishes photos of Pamela and Cheryl in the Sioux City Journal and asks the public for help locating them. And one of them feels like a clue. Hi, listeners. In honor of May being Missing and Unidentified Persons Awareness Month, ParCast is presenting a new collection of captivating stories you do not want to miss. On Disappearances, Sarah Turney examines the disturbing crimes linked to the Highway of Tears and the Bethesda Home for Girls. Plus, she welcomes the founders of the Black and Missing Foundation for a special discussion. Catch these episodes starting May 4th. Then on Unsolved Murders, Sarah joins Wendy and me for three no-body homicide cases rife with cons, conspiracies, and conflicting statements. The Unsolved Murders special, The Missing Dead, starts May 16th. Follow Disappearances and Unsolved Murders to hear all of these episodes all month long. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. After Pamela and Cheryl go missing, one of the Jackson's neighbors visits the Vermilion Police Station. He has information about a phone call between Pamela and a guy named David about a month before the girls disappeared. He knows about this conversation because he overheard it on a shared party line. This technology is a blast from the past. Back when everyone used landlines, a lot of families started off with just a single line. So, if someone in your house was using the phone, then you couldn't make a call. And if you picked up the receiver, you could hear their conversation. A shared party line was one line or circuit that serviced multiple households. This technology phased out of cities in the 1950s, but it was still the norm in rural areas like Vermilion during the 70s. So, when Pamela spoke with David... Her neighbor could listen in simply by picking up his home phone. He was on the same party line as the Jacksons. Now the neighbor can tell police all about this call. Pamela complained of a hangover and teased David about slamming her hand in a car door. David flirted back, telling Pamela he wished he had taken pictures of her. The neighbor isn't sure who David is, but suspects he might be a student at the University of South Dakota. 
Like every other tip coming in, the police write this one up and file it, but it doesn't seem to go anywhere. A couple of weeks pass without any breaks in the case. The families start to feel the police are relying too much on a rumor swirling through the community that Pamela and Cheryl ran away to join a counterculture movement. I won't try to cover an entire cultural shift right now, so here's what's important to this story. Throughout the 1960s, young people were rejecting pre-existing social norms and choosing things like protests and communal living over the typical college, job, and family route. By the time the girls disappeared, American youth had been bucking the establishment for the last decade. Vermilion was no exception, and local law enforcement had noticed. With nothing to indicate foul play, police are inclined to lump the girls into this trend. The Jackson and Miller families aren't sure they agree. Neither girl packed any belongings. Pamela didn't have her medication or her glasses, both of which she depends on. Both girls also received paychecks just before they disappeared, but never cashed them. Plus, Pamela's not the type to skip town unannounced. Cheryl, well, there are certain aspects of the runaway theory that do seem somewhat plausible. She's ambitious, set on becoming a model and seeing the world. She even recently dropped out of school. Her mom, Helen, has family in California. She wonders if that's where Cheryl has gone. Helen reaches out to her relatives there, and Vermilion police contact their West Coast counterparts, but no one reports any sign of the girls. Two weeks go by, then three. With each passing day, both families find it harder and harder to believe their girls are alive. When another tragedy hits the Miller family, their doubts solidify. Less than a month after Cheryl and Pamela went missing, Cheryl's grandmother, Pearl, passes away. The Millers publish her obituary in national newspapers, praying that Cheryl will see it and come home. They even delay the funeral. But Cheryl doesn't turn up. For her eight-year-old sister, Rita, this is when it becomes real. She knows Cheryl is never coming home. Pamela's dad, Oscar, isn't ready to think that way. He and Pamela's uncles keep up a physical search. They drive the roads surrounding the gravel pit, often looking for the Studebaker. The rest of the community keeps Pamela and Cheryl top of mind as well. One officer says anytime someone talks about, quote, the girls, everyone knows who they're referring to. As the one-year anniversary of the disappearance approaches, Pamela and Cheryl's former high school classmates get together and pool their money to run an awareness ad in the local paper. They want to make sure Vermilion doesn't forget their friends. They do the same thing at the two-year anniversary. And the three. It's like their high school reunions become less about high school and more about remembering Pamela and Cheryl. Years go by this way. Then, decades. 
As Cheryl's sister Rita grows into adulthood, she sticks around Vermilion. That way, the memory of her older sister is always close by. Rita feels like her life is a record that keeps spinning, playing the same song over and over. At birthdays, deaths, graduations, and even her own wedding, no matter the milestone, she feels the same emotion wash over her. It's wistful, like the opening track on a familiar album. Rita can't live through a big event without stopping to wonder what it would be like to have Cheryl there beside her. When tips come in or new technology becomes available throughout the 1970s and 80s, law enforcement launches new searches for Pamela and Cheryl. For a while, these efforts don't amount to much. But then that changes. Sometime around 1990, Detective Ray Hoffman of the Vermilion Police Department is investigating a man named David Licken for kidnapping and rape. This case has nothing to do with the teenage girls who disappeared almost two decades ago at this point. But Hoffman's brain keeps snagging on something. Like he's sure there's a connection between the cases, he just can't remember what. So he pulls the file on Pamela Jackson and Cheryl Miller. It takes some shuffling, but he finally zeroes in on what he's looking for. The phone conversation between Pamela and a boy referred to as David. Hoffman notes that David Licken is the same age as Pamela and Cheryl. He was a University of South Dakota student, like Pamela's neighbor suspected, and he lived right down the road from the gravel pit in 1971. It doesn't seem like law enforcement looked into David back then. Hoffman brings his theory to his superiors, but they decide not to investigate a connection yet. To them, it'd be better to keep the focus on David's current case. This, at least, pays off. In 1991, a jury finds David guilty of rape and kidnapping. He goes to prison for life under a 225-year sentence. Even with that now successfully wrapped up, Hoffman's theory doesn't see the light of day for another decade and a half. It takes the formation of a new state-level cold cases unit in May 2004. The attention might be coming late, but it's undivided. Pamela and Cheryl's case is a top priority for the unit. And Detective Hoffman's investigative materials allow them to investigate a connection between David and the missing girls. They learn that David was part of Cheryl and Pamela's social circle. He went to school with Cheryl. They rode the bus together. And he attended church with both girls. Upon questioning, David confirms that he was acquainted with them. Pamela's dad corroborates the party line tip. Pamela mentioned hurting her hand when, quote, some guy tried to grab her in the car, but he never knew who the guy was. Circumstantial evidence continues to mount. Police talk to David's rape survivor, who remembers David mentioning, quote, some girl that is buried on the farm. When she says this, the interviewer's blood runs cold. They hadn't mentioned to the survivor that David was a murder suspect. 
The most damning information comes from David's younger sister, Nancy Bell. In the summer of 1971, when Nancy was 15, she saw a car on the family farm. Inside, she saw Cheryl draped over the steering wheel and Pamela leaning on the passenger window. Later, Nancy saw her family digging a large hole on the property that they used as a burn pit. Police show Nancy photographs of several different cars and ask her to pick out the one she saw parked on the farm. She selects the Studebaker Lark. It's not clear why Nancy didn't bring this information to law enforcement earlier, but Nancy's often overwhelmed by her memories. For her, it seems like burying these horrible experiences was a matter of survival. With this information, and a whole lot more, including interviews with other family members and victims, the investigators secure a search warrant for the Licken family farm in September 2004. David grew up there. Now his elderly mother and brother Kerwin Licken still call the farm home. Investigators swarm the expansive property and systematically dismantle it in search of anything that could be evidence. They run ground-penetrating radar over the acres of pasture. With the radar data and a map Nancy made from memory, police spend four days digging up areas on the farm. They walk out with all kinds of things. A red purse found tucked into the rafters of the house. Piles of paperwork, pictures, and letters. Bones from the septic tank. Everything goes to forensics for further testing. But... There's no smoking gun. Law enforcement returns to the farm two more times, once at the end of 2004 and once in 2006. During those searches, they find some vintage hubcaps and a Bible. Inside the Bible are a few strands of hair and newspaper articles about Pamela and Cheryl's case. It's not enough to bring charges. Of course, the whole process is agony for the Jackson and Miller families. The possibility that the girls might have suffered at the hands of a serial rapist haunts them. But David remains steadfast that he had nothing to do with the girls' disappearance. And investigators can't find anything solid that proves otherwise. That is, until a witness comes forward. Aloysius Black Crow. Aloysius is an inmate incarcerated with David, and what he has to say is shocking. Aloysius Blackrow tells investigators that fellow inmate David Licken told him that he murdered Pamela and Cheryl. Investigators jump on this lead and ask Aloysius to wear a wire and record David incriminating himself in the murders. In exchange, he'll receive some kind of reward, likely time off his sentence. It works. Aloysius brings back a recording of David talking about how he hitched a ride with the girls, then killed them at his farm. He put locks of their hair in a Bible, 
then drove with his brother out of state to get rid of the Studebaker. The confession tips the scales. There's finally enough evidence to file charges. In July 2007, a grand jury indicts David for two counts of murder. The trial is scheduled for March 2008. The Jackson and Miller families prepare to look into the eyes of the person who took away their loved ones. But the trial never happens. In February 2008, the state of South Dakota has to drop its charges against David Licken for the murders of Pamela Jackson and Cheryl Miller. The state's key piece of evidence, a taped jailhouse confession, turns out to be fake. Aloysius Black Crow lied to investigators about recording David. He schemed with another inmate to fabricate a confession. The voice on the tape wasn't David, but the co-conspirator. It's not totally clear exactly how the confession is determined to be fake, but it's David's defense attorney who breaks the news to the public. He later says the recordings didn't sound like David. In response, the South Dakota Department of Criminal Investigation claims they're the ones who discovered the tape was fabricated, but don't provide more details. No matter how it happened, this outcome is shattering for the Jackson and Miller families. Rita, now 45, is devastated. For a while, the investigation into David made her feel like she was going to get some closure. Suddenly, that progress has evaporated. She's no closer to answers about what happened to her sister than she was the day Cheryl disappeared. As time continues on, this kind of closure moves completely out of reach for other family members. On September 18th, 2013, Oscar Jackson passes away in a nursing facility. He's the last living parent between Pamela and Cheryl. For years, he refused to move out of his old farmhouse. He wanted Pamela to be able to come home. His obituary cites his daughter's disappearance as his greatest sadness. Five days after Oscar's death, a local fisherman casts off a bridge into Brulee Creek. He's on a back road in the next county over from Vermilion. The water's dirtier than usual, and there's not much of it. The area is experiencing a record-breaking drought. The water level has been receding for years, Tree roots and shrubs that used to be underwater now clog the bank. But an unexpected shape in the undergrowth catches the fisherman's eye. It's the same muddy gray as everything else, but it's a perfect circle. It's a car wheel. Two, in fact. He's looking at a car submerged upside down. The fisherman gets on the phone immediately. Like so many people in his community, he's familiar with Cheryl and Pamela's case. And he's pretty sure he just found their Studebaker lark. Sheriff deputies respond and they share the fisherman's excitement. They're not far from the gravel pit. The hubcaps and license plate on the car are intact and a match for the missing Studebaker. 
Law enforcement officers across the state who work the case get the call they've been waiting decades to receive, like Clay County Sheriff Andy Howe. When he hears, we found the car, he doesn't ask questions. He knows exactly which car. He reaches out to Rita, one of the last remaining immediate family members. Rita describes the call as one of the happiest moments of her life. At the creek, some of the girls' family join investigators as they attempt to remove the car from the water. It's severely degraded, and it becomes obvious that moving the entire vehicle could destroy evidence. So they decide to take what they can from inside the car. One of the first things they encounter are two sets of human remains in the front seats. Even as the bodies are sent off for DNA testing, the families both feel sure that it's Pamela and Cheryl. Investigators find Cheryl's driver's license and personal notes inside her purse. Both girls' clothes are partially intact. Finally, the Miller and Jackson families know where Pamela and Cheryl are. Now, it's up to investigators to figure out what happened. It takes several months, but in April 2014, the state of South Dakota shares its findings. Their report sheds some light on the events that night in 1971. First, DNA analysis confirms Pamela and Cheryl's identities. Additional testing on the remains shows no sign that the girls were intoxicated at their time of death. There's no indication of foul play. As far as investigators can tell, the car was running fine. It was in gear and the headlights were on when it hit the water. According to Cheryl's stopped watch, this happened at 10.25 p.m. We'll never know how Pamela and Cheryl ended up in the creek. It's hard to even say whether the car crashed at the same spot where it was eventually found. Flood waters and the creek current could have pushed it downstream. Authorities are pretty sure it was an accident, but anything more detailed than that is a theory. Speaking of theories, here are a few notable ones. The girls were driving on an unfamiliar gravel road. Dust from a car in front of them obscured their view, and they went off course. The bridge the Studebaker was under was also relatively new in 1971. Cheryl might not have known how narrow the bridge was and drove off the edge by accident. Also, one of the Studebaker's tires was found damaged, so another theory is that a blown tire surprised Cheryl, causing her to lose control of the car, but we'll never know if the tire got torn up before or after going into the water. No matter what happened, the outcome is the same. Pamela and Cheryl drowned in the submerged car. The news brings up a lot of different emotions. It's hard for families and investigators not to think about the what-ifs. Remember, civilians and police searched that area near Brulee Creek multiple times with no luck. The Studebaker was there all along. 
but it needed the right set of circumstances to surface. Mostly, the families are grateful to have some closure. Rita hosts an open memorial service for Cheryl, inviting the community to participate. She recognizes that Cheryl's disappearance affected a lot of people beyond her family, and she wants them all to be able to heal. At the same time, David Licken's family is looking for a different kind of closure. With proof that Pamela and Cheryl weren't murdered, the Licken family feels the state of South Dakota owes them an apology. Kerwin Licken, David's brother, says his family has been, quote, put through the ringer. The Lickens' livelihood and property were disrupted by the searches. With all the officers coming and going, they were unable to care for their cattle properly, and all the hubbub, some pet kittens died. On top of that, there's the humiliation of living under suspicion from their community. Kerwin himself suffered accusations, now proven untrue, that he helped David commit the murder. David's defense attorney, Mike Butler, accuses investigators of tunnel vision. He says the officers, quote, decided it was David before they had any evidence and started working their way backward. But two federal courts ruled that the state searched the Licken Farm legally. South Dakota Attorney General Marty Jackley acknowledges that the intrusion was hard on the Lickens, but sees no reason to apologize. In his eyes, law enforcement did its job. He hopes that all three families find closure. Closure looks different for everyone. Over 42 years, a lot of different people were touched by Pamela and Cheryl's disappearances. The community of Vermilion can rest a little easier knowing the two girls weren't victims of violence. And hopefully law enforcement feels a little humbled. The resolution of this case can serve as a reminder of the tunnel vision that sometimes occurs. And the Licken family, though still recovering, can look their neighbors in the eye again. For Rita, she knows she'll never stop hearing that record over and over because she can never stop missing her sister. The vinyl will always be spinning, but maybe now it plays a sweeter song. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next Monday with another cold case. For more information on the disappearance of Pamela Jackson and Cheryl Miller, amongst the many sources we used, we found coverage by the Sioux City Journal, the Argus Leader, and Investigation Discovery's Gone episode titled Troubled Waters, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from ParCast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show is developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Hannah McIntosh, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Kate Murdoch, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, 
researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Russell Nash, and produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Carter Roy. <laughs> <laughs>